much of, uh, much of our lives now show up online, and uh, some, sometimes it's, it's really bad. Sometimes we get really beautiful things from our online interactions. And a few weeks ago, one of us here shared this, I don't know, if it's not really a poem, it's a reading uh, on Facebook, and I saved it for this week and want to share it with you guys right now. So this was, this was found on Facebook. Church is hard. Church is hard for the person walking through the doors afraid of judgment. Church is hard for the pastor's family under the microscope of an entire body. Church is hard for the prodigal soul returning home broken and, betrayed and broken and battered by the world. Church is hard for the girl who looks like she has it all together but doesn't. Church is hard for the couple who fought the entire drive to the Sunday service. Some of you have had that experience, right? And you're like elbowing each other and tears, and then you walk in the door like, hey, good morning, everybody. Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Church is hard for the single mom, surrounded by couples holding hands with seemingly perfect families. Church is hard for the widow or the widower with no invitation to lunch after the service. Church is hard for the elder with an estranged child. Church is hard for the person singing worship songs overwhelmed by the weight of the lyrics. Church is hard for the man insecure in his role as a leader. Church is hard for the wife who longs to be led by a righteous man. Church is hard for the nursery volunteer who desperately longs for a baby to love. Church is hard for the single woman, single man, praying that God brings them a mate. Church is hard for the teenage girl wearing a scarlet letter, ashamed of her mistakes. Church is hard for the sinners, and church is hard for me. It's hard because on the outside, it all looks shiny and perfect, Sunday best in behavior and dress. However, Underneath those layers, you find a body of imperfect people, carnal souls, selfish motives. But here is the beauty of the church. The church isn't a building. It's not a mentality or an expectation. The church is a body. The church is a group of sinners saved by grace, living in fellowship as saints. church is a body of believers bound as brothers and sisters by an eternal love. Church is a holy ground where sinners stand as equals before the throne of grace. Church is a refuge for broken hearts and a training ground for mighty warriors. Church is a converging of confrontation and invitation where sin is confronted and hearts are invited to seek restoration. Church is a lesson in faith and trust. Church is a bearer of burdens and a giver of hope. Church is a family. Family coming together setting aside differences, forgetting past mistakes, rejoicing in small victories. Church, the body of Christ, the circle of sinners turned to saints by Jacob Walder. Would you please pray with me? Father, thank you for the true words in this reading and uh, the even truer words as we come to the book of Acts this morning. Lord, we Come as your people, we thank you for that you have worked miraculously in many lives in this circle of people, that you have, you have saved and regenerated many of us. You have filled us with your spirit, you have not only made us new creations, but you have come and, and dwelt in us. I thank you that you have called us out of the world, called us together as a congregation, and you sent us back into the world on mission for you. Thank you, Lord, for, for all the hard things that go along with being a church family, and I thank you for those here today who have pushed through and endured through hard things, relationship messes, disappointments, 
uh, betrayals, all the, the things that can hurt, and yet they have chosen to be part of this local body, this extended family. I thank you for those, Lord, who um, know that, that this family, this spiritual family, is an eternal family, and they're working hard to make sure that we love and serve each other. Lord, as we look at the book of Acts today and we see a church united, would you make us more like that? Would you help us to love, serve, be good brothers and sisters to each other? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going through Acts. We're in our fifth week in the book of Acts. We are, we, what we've seen so far is Jesus, after his resurrection, gathers the disciples together and he says, I'm sending you guys out on mission around the world, but first you need to wait in Jerusalem for the promise Holy Spirit to come to you. After Jesus ascends to heaven, they wait in Jerusalem for 10 days, and then on what we call the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out onto a group of about 120 people hiding in an upper room. The Spirit comes and dwells inside of them. God, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, enters into human beings, and in that particular occasion, he empowered them in a rather unique way. He gave them the ability to speak languages that they had not learned. They were regularly earthly languages, as is clear in the book of Acts there, because other people who had traveled from different parts of the world to be in the the Jerusalem for the feast days, they could understand them in their own languages. Everybody came running. What is going on? These are just regular people from Galilee. How can they speak my language? Peter stands up and preaches his first sermon. He's carried along by the Spirit of God. Peter is not a learned guy. He's not particularly great with his words. He put his foot in his mouth numerous times, as recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And yet he stands and he proclaims the gospel of Jesus to a bunch of people, Jewish and Gentile converts to Judaism. And we're told that at the end of that sermon, 3,000 people trusted in Christ for salvation, became members of the church. I asked the question last week, can you imagine? So if we had everybody who considers VCC their home church here on one Sunday, we'd probably have about 120 people in this room. Imagine later that day, we now have 3,000 people attached to the church, saved that very day. First of all, it'd be very crowded, and our water problem would be very exasperated. But just imagine, I mean, there's got to be so much energy and excitement and Probably a lot of fear, and their apostles are overwhelmed. What in the world are we going to do? That's where we were last week. So we ended it this way, uh, Acts 2, 40 and 41. You'll pay, find this on page 910 in the Black Pew Bibles. And with many other words, he bore witness, that's Peter, bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What did they do right after that? The church has just grown by about 2,500%. Will they start a building campaign, build an awesome building with a children's wing state-of-the-art technology, a great sign out front for putting cheesy sayings on to bless the community? No, they didn't do that. Did they organize themselves into committees and design a great menu of ministries for the people to choose from? Singles ministry, older adult ministry, young marrieds ministries, divorce recovery groups, Christian sports leagues, they didn't do any of that. 
I'm going to read the last six verses of chapter 2. I'm just going to read through the whole thing, and then we're going to go back, and one verse at a time, we're going to look at it in detail. But here's what they did. Right after the Holy Spirit is poured out on them, they're able to speak in other languages. Peter gives a sermon. 3,000 are added to the church. Acts 2, 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. How about that? Can you imagine being a part of that new religious movement those first few days and weeks as they were experiencing unprecedented growth, life, excitement? You got a whole bunch of people with Jewish backgrounds together in the city of Jerusalem. They had been expecting for centuries that God would send a Messiah to rescue them, and they have just come to the conclusion that Jesus is that promised Messiah, and it has turned their lives upside down. They have repented of their sins, turned away from their sins. They have turned toward Christ. They're trusting in Christ alone for salvation. They're showing this by being baptized, and they are growing and excited. Now, this is also a recipe for chaos and confusion. You've got 3,000 brand new baby Christians. What are you going to do with them? Yeah, they've got a religious background. They know the Old Testament really well, but they know very little about Jesus. They know very little about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. The apostles now have a great burden. They, They need to teach the people. They need to disciple the people. They need uh, people to step up and lead and serve in in certain ways. They need to squash false ideas and false teachings that might draw people away. They need to teach people how to love each other and serve each other. And they got to deal with human nature. People get really annoyed with each other, step on each other's toes, offend each other. All of that is going to have to be dealt with. But those six verses paint for us a picture of a church united. Let's go through this. I want to point out here in our first verse, which reads, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. I want to point out five things in this verse. First, the apostles' teaching. Who are the apostles? Jesus had chosen 12 men. His disciples, later he calls them apostles as they're sent out on mission. Judas was one of them. He betrayed Jesus, took his own life. So the apostles got together and they drew straws. They put Matthew in as a replacement, or not Matthew, Matthias. So they've got 12 guys again. These guys are generally uneducated. Some of them had a good education probably, but mostly just, they're just regular guys. They would not have made it through high school today. They're, they're working blue-collar jobs, and yet they are now in charge of this new religious movement that we call Christianity. These guys taught the early church. It's for the early church in order to um, devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles have to be teaching. What would they be teaching? Well, there is no New Testament. 
right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have not been written. None of the letters that are so helpful as we, like, what are we supposed to teach about this? What are, how do we deal with this? All of that, none of that has been written yet. They've got the Old Testament, and they've got the teachings of Jesus himself. They've been with him for three years. I'm sure they leaned really heavily on the Sermon on the Mount. You find that in the beginning of Matthew, where Jesus, basically for three whole chapters in the book of Matthew, he just preaches this sermon. And the the main idea of the Sermon on the Mount is, you think life is like this, it's actually like this. It's upside down from what you think. And so they, they had lots of material, probably hundreds of times, listening to Jesus teach. But imagine the pressure that they feel as they, like, I, I have no idea. what. To, how am I going to teach these people? What material am I going to use? And they're scrambling and making notes and they're comparing with each other and trying to figure it all out. And yet, the Spirit of God had filled them and was guiding them. And they were able to teach truth and specifically the truth that was needed at that particular time. And the church submitted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, today, we have the apostles' teaching in the New Testament. Are we as a church committed to submitting to, placing ourselves under the authority of the apostles' teaching as delivered to us in the New Testament? If we're just trying to encourage each other, be motivational with each other, help each other get through the week, we can say all kinds of goofy stuff to each other. Right, But if we're trying to be shaped as a church into the image of Christ, then we have, to, we have to govern ourselves or allow the apostles' teaching in the New Testament to govern us as it did in this verse. What's, what's the next thing that they list here? The fellowship. Fellowship is like friendship, but is even more. It's a deeper connection. It's a, it's a like-minded or a like-hearted people that are working together for the good of each other in a common cause. They're committed to loving and supporting each other. It's a devotion to love each other no matter what. I think of Tolkien's trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, in the first book, The Fellowship of the Ring, where you get a band of mostly strangers that come together and they become closer than brothers during this fellowship. Their lives mix together. They need each other. They rely on each other and they serve and they sacrifice for each other. Now, we have a room downstairs here called the Fellowship Hall. The kids are in there right now having a great time with the Austins leading them. That doesn't mean that it's the only place within our church congregation that fellowship happens, but when this building was built, the the designers, the people in charge of it, they said, we're going to set aside a room that is meant to foster fellowship, and we're going to have meals in there, and we're going to have meetings in there, and we're going to, they probably didn't picture the kids down there but it's, it's become this place where fellowship happens. It's not the only place. Just like if you only get fed on the Word of God here on Sunday mornings, if your fellowship only happens in the formalness of the fellowship hall, then you're really missing out. You're robbing yourself. We are meant to be friends with each other. And you can't be close friends with everybody in here but you can be close friends with a few of them. You can intentionally say, I, look, I know I normally just hang out with the people that I like the most or like me the most, but I'm, I'm going to intentionally love and serve and connect to people who 
maybe even have been my enemy in the past, or that I just don't, they rub me the wrong way, that fellowship in intention can be a beautiful thing. If you're the person who tends to just scoot in here right before the service starts and then get out as the last chords are fading away, you're robbing yourself of the fellowship that you were designed not just to enjoy, but to need. And you're robbing others of the fellowship that they need from you. We need each other. Every member of this body is important. The third thing in the verse is the breaking of bread. Now, I immediately think of communion and sharing meals together. Two very important parts of the life of the church. In fact, this evening, uh, well, assuming we have water, this evening, our outpost is gathering at our house in order to have a meal together. Next week, or two weeks from now, we'll celebrate communion here together. When we, when we share a meal together, fellowship, connection, friendship is fostered. We not, not only do we nourish our bodies, we nourish our souls, and we nourish this local body of Christ. Whether it's in conversation around a cup of coffee before or after the service, or it's communion, or it's a meal in the fellowship hall, or a meal at your home, or whatever it is, when we are engaged in God-honoring fellowship, there's a horizontal and a vertical aspect to that. We are united in Christ vertically as one body for Him, and horizontally we are loving each other. We're, we're intentionally stepping out of our comfort zone in order to love and care for each other. When we are growing both horizontally and vertically in that, our fellowship gets stronger. Let me encourage you to think about inviting folks to a meal at your house. Maybe you're a lousy cook and you can just invite them to meet you at Taco Bell. That's good too. Unless it's a Sydney Taco Bell. I don't recommend that. Bad experience there. But I, I would recommend that you guys try to think about, okay, how, how often could I just be hospitable and invite people over and, and, and share a meal? One of our families in the church last summer, I think it was, my time is all messed up now, but last summer, I think about, they set aside, they said, we're, gonna, we're just going to invite people intentionally every couple of weeks over to the house, and we're going to have a meal together with them. And that was a really cool thing. It was fostering a lot of friendships in the church. Sharing meals together breaking bread together, as these early disciples were doing, is the bread and butter, pardon the pun, of Christian fellowship. It is the great way for us to get to know each other over a meal. The fourth thing is prayers. And it actually says, the prayers. So it's like this this formalized thing. And this makes sense because they're coming out of Judaism. All of them are used to, there are certain times of day when you go to the temple and you offer certain prayers and there's this calendar throughout the year where this psalm is read on this day and it's just, it's, it's formalized. And yet, they continue in that process. These new Christians see themselves not as a new breakaway religion, but as a completion, as a fulfillment of, of Judaism. And so they continue on with much of what they did in their Jewish lives. They continue to go to the temple, and we're actually seeing in just a minute, they go to the temple every day for a while, and they're continuing in these prayers together. I wonder, is your prayer life more than just vertical? Is it also horizontal? Do you pray with people? 
You pray with your family each day. Pray with your spouse. Pray with your kids. Do you ever ask someone else in this congregation, will you pray with me about this thing? This is a large group of people devoting themselves to prayer together each day. And that leads us to the fifth thing that I wanted to point out in this first verse. We've got these four things, apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of the bread, and the prayers. And these are all important, but they are, they're meaningless, they're worthless, unless people are actually doing them. So if you go back to the beginning of the verse, it says, they devoted themselves. They intentionally devoted themselves to these four things. They didn't say, hey, you know, if I got a little bit of extra time, I'm going to allow this to happen in my life. They're not passively sitting back and thinking, I just, I hope God just you know, does something to help me know him more. No, they are devoting themselves to these things. They are filled up with a passionate desire to grow in this new faith. They've intentionally carved out time for these four spiritual disciplines, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, breaking the bread, and the prayers. All right. Let's go on to verse 43. Awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. That's interesting. Wonders and signs being done through the apostles. Future places in Acts, we'll get some details about some of those wonders and signs. We'll see people healed. We will see people raised from the dead. I don't know about you guys, but if I was just reading this for the first time, I would be a little surprised by this. Like These guys are not that impressive. Jesus, yes, he pulls off these amazing miracles, but, but these guys, really? And that's the difference that the filling of the Holy Spirit has made to them. That God... The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, has come and dwelled inside of them. And as Jesus promised in Acts 1.8, has empowered them. They didn't just learn some neat tricks on how to heal people or have the illusion of healing people. The, the Spirit of God has empowered them. Now, Jesus himself said that this was going to happen. He talked about it a few times, even way before his ascension. In John 14.12, he says this to the same group of guys. John 14, 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Like even, even greater works than Jesus? The walking on water and the feeding the 5,000 and raising Lazarus from the dead? Well, just a few verses later, verses 15 through 17, he says this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. And notice most English Bibles will capitalize the H here. It's referring to the Holy Spirit as the helper. To be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And there is the promise of the change of the day of Pentecost. Yeah, the Spirit of God has been active from the very beginning. Right there in Genesis 1, we see the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep, active in the process of creating the whole world. And he's been active that whole time. Then right there at the end, it says, he dwells with you and will be in you. And that's the change of the day of Pentecost. The Spirit of God comes to dwell inside of us. When you become a Christian, 
The third member of the Trinity takes up residence inside of you. Isn't that amazing? It was promised by Jesus. came true on that day of Pentecost. Let's go back to the book of Acts, verse 44. What else will Luke tell us about this baby church? And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And we think, what? This cannot be right, because this sounds like communism, and everybody knows that every Christian is supposed to be uh, a good conservative, Republican, or maybe even a libertarian, and to fight for the free market principles that have made the United States the wealthiest country in the history of the world, right? This is not communism. This is uncoerced. The government is not involved. The government is not taxing or taking away and then keeping a bunch for themselves and maybe giving a little bit to those who are in need. This is voluntary. This is spontaneous. This is people filled with the Spirit of God, overjoyed at what God is doing in their lives, seeing their neighbors, their now brothers and sisters in need, and freely giving to them. This is not communism. This is not socialism. It's not quite like the capitalism that we're used to either, though. It's such a, such a radical generosity, such a selflessness, and it brings life. Communism has shown itself to bring a lot of death. In, in the last hundred years, 100 million people have been murdered in the name of communism and the cause of communism. Just amazing. Writing in the Wall Street Journal, David Satter says, that makes communism the greatest catastrophe in human history. I would have to put a little addition on it. It's the greatest man-made catastrophe in human history. I would say that Noah's flood probably was a greater catastrophe than communism. Only eight people survived that. But if we're honest, these verses, this idea of this radical generosity and selflessness makes us so uncomfortable that if, if it actually was attached to the name communism, it would make us happy because then we would have a philosophical and economic and historical reason to reject this, and yet it's not there. We are left with this challenge of these people in their new life in Christ, are overflowing with generosity. And the only way to, to explain this is that the Spirit of God is doing this in them miraculously. And that makes us uncomfortable. Some of you, you love to be generous. My wife is one of those. She loves to be generous. When we were um, very, very young in our marriage and money was really tight, we came up with this idea. I think it was, it was her idea. It probably was because it was a good one. She said, we would, we would tithe our 10% to church and we would give our extra percentage to the missionaries that we're supporting. And then we would set aside a small amount out of each paycheck that she could consider discretionary giving. And she could give that away however we want, she wants. It's, it's in the budget and she can just, and the joy that it gives her, she can just give it away. She can save it up for a few months and give it away in a chunk or she can throw it in the, Salvation Army, whatever it is, that discretionary giving was set aside on purpose from the beginning for her to be generous. 
But this, this goes way beyond that. Right? This, is, this is crazy, radical stuff because the Spirit of God is at work in them. Verse 46. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. We'll finish that verse in just a minute there, but notice this is necessarily a temporary and unique situation. Right? The new church is going to the temple every day. They're doing their prayers together. They're gathering each other homes every day. They're selling their stuff and sharing their stuff. They're, they're, they're living in such a radical, unique way that we understand that it just, it just has to be temporary because eventually somebody's got to start working again. You know, the food's gone. There's nothing to share. You've sold everything in order to give it to your neighbor. Somebody's got to work, but at least for a little while, every day, they're coming together in the temple. They're coming together in their homes in order to share meals together. They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And in this amazing season, God was at work in a unique and beautiful way. We can't replicate this. God, God could just, he could just zap us and add the entire population of Versailles to us in, in one day. We wouldn't have any idea what to do with that, right? But he's probably not going to do that. He could if he wanted to. Instead, today he works through this regular life, this, this very different pattern that we're in, this temporary amazingness that we see here simply wasn't physically sustainable. But man, it was good while it lasted, while God was pouring himself out in these amazing ways. The, the people of Jerusalem who had been shouting, crucify him, just a few days earlier are now pleading with the apostles, what, what, what must we do to be saved? Tell us the good news, please. And then the last verse of 47, last part of 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Can you imagine if that was true for us? I'm not talking about filling the building, filling the offering plate. I'm talking about what if every day, or let's make it easier. What if, what if every few weeks, what if every month, or at least a few times a year, God was using our congregation to bring dead people to life, lost people to be found, spiritual orphans to be adopted into the family of God, new lives in Christ because of our witness and our ministry. I believe that that's what God wants in our church. How, how would this happen? How could we see this kind of result, even to a much smaller degree? How could we see this? I would suggest first two things. We are regular people. They were regular people. We've got the Spirit of God. They've got the Spirit of God. What are these two things? First, I would say that we would have to be proclaiming the gospel of Jesus to lost people. We can't keep it to ourselves. We have to tell people. Now, this could happen on a Sunday morning. I encourage all of you to invite lost friends and family and neighbors to come. They, they will hear the gospel here every Sunday in one form or another. 
Some Sundays it'll be an extended presentation of the gospel with lots of details. Other times it'll just be very quick, like this. The gospel is the good news that even though all sinners, all of us are sinners, we are all alienated from God and unable to work our way back to God, Jesus came as God in the flesh, lived the perfect life that we were supposed to, took upon himself all of our sin and our punishment and our shame, died on the cross as we deserve to, offering himself as a substitutionary sacrifice so that we could be forgiven and accepted into the family of God. We receive that by repentance, turning from our sinful, self-willed lives, and faith, trusting in Christ alone for salvation. We don't earn it. We don't work for it. We don't perform well enough to get it. We don't have the right last name. We don't give enough or serve enough or attend enough. It is a gift. That is the gospel. And you can invite folks, and they'll hear that to different levels each Sunday here. But let me encourage you to get a very firm grasp of the gospel yourself. To know the gospel inside and out, and to practice how you communicate it to people so that when you find yourself in that conversation, maybe with the guy at the checkout line, maybe with somebody that you've known for 50 years, and God is leading you to share, you are ready. You can get the basics out, and you can tell them the best news there is. Unless we are doing that, it is unreasonable to expect God to bring people to salvation through our church. Because he works through people to do that. If you'd like to get a better grasp of the gospel, I have to give away three copies of this book, What is the Gospel? by Greg Gilbert. You guys maybe have seen the little teeny tract that is just a single page version of this, but this is, this is the meat and potatoes version of it. I'm going to leave this here, and after the service, you guys are welcome to come get those three copies, What is the Gospel? laid out in the most helpful way that I have come across in years. The second thing that I think has to happen in order for us to be used by God in order to see people regularly coming into the family of God is that we have to love each other like a family. That the the way that we unite with each other intentionally, not on accident, not just because we happen to be in proximity to each other, but we, we unite with each other intentionally. We love and serve each other. We share our lives with each other. We allow lives to rub up against each other, and it makes some friction sometimes, but that's okay. We are an extended family of spiritual siblings, and we are called to know each other deeply and to love each other sacrificially. To go back to the Gospel of John that I've been reading out of a couple times already today. We go one chapter earlier. Jesus says this to these same guys A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So Jesus has loved incarnationally. He's come, he's intentionally gone to those he's trying to reach. We're to do that too. He has loved self sacrificially. He went to the point of giving his life. In order to love us, that is how we are to love each other. He says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then he says this in verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We live in a skeptical world. Some of those skeptics think that Jesus is pretty cool. And they are eager to see people who take Jesus seriously. How will they know if we are taking Jesus seriously, 
How will they know if we are his disciples? It's by our love for each other. Yes, we need to be reaching out. We need to be loving people outside of the church. But what Jesus is saying here is your love as an extended family for each other shows to the world that you belong to me. So I wonder how you need to apply what I shared with you this morning. What do you think God wants you to do with these six verses that we looked at today? Do you need to devote yourself? Have you been undevoted? Have you been kind of laissez-faire? Maybe I will, maybe I won't. If I've got some extra time, I will. Do you need to devote yourself specifically to the apostles' teaching? Do you need to be regularly reading, studying, memorizing, ingesting, shaping your life with the New Testament, the teaching of the apostles? What about fellowship? Do you need to be intentionally building friendships and spending time with other Christians in order to be united with them in fellowship? Breaking of the bread, sharing meals together, prayers, not just you and God, but you and God and your brothers and sisters in prayer. Inviting folks to hear the proclamation of the gospel here, proclaiming the gospel yourself through your existing and future relationships and loving each other. Those are all those things that we saw in this passage that we could do. I encourage you to pick one of those and figure out how you can do it differently, do it better. Not under your own power, but under the empowerment of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you if Jesus has saved you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these six rich verses. Thank you for the other verses back in John that shed light on it for us. Thank you, Lord, for that that season in the early church where they were united together. They were of one heart and mind. They were uh, they were growing numerically. They were growing in love for each other. Their lives were turned upside down. You were doing great things through them. We, we know from the book of Acts that things will get hard for them, but for a little while, man, it was really good. Thank you for that. Thank you that so many of them remained faithful when it got harder later. I pray, Lord, that you would Help these six verses get deep down inside of us and that as individuals and as families and as small groups and as a church, you would be making us more like what we see described here today. Would you help us to, to love and serve, share our lives with each other? Would you make us good gospel witnesses to each other, to the world around us? Would you be bringing people to faith in Christ through our family here? bringing new people into this family. Lord, we thank you that you have given us the resources that we need. You have filled us, empowered us with your Holy Spirit. We confess we fight against you a lot. We don't want to repent of that. Instead, we want to partner with you. We want to uh, basically be, in a, be a ship blown by your wind. Help us, to, help us to go with you. Help us to work with you. May your Spirit guide us embolden us and empower us. In Jesus' name, amen.